Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with Timothy Noonan about his new book, Humanitarian Invasion, Global Development in Cold War Afghanistan, which is put out by Cambridge University Press. Timothy, welcome to the show. Hi, Christian. It's a pleasure to speak with you. It's a pleasure to speak with you as well. And to start off with, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about your background. Sure, sure. Well, I um, grew up in the Los Angeles area and ended up coming to the East Coast for um, university. And um, while at, uh, at Princeton University, where I did my undergrad, um, I had the chance to study a lot of modern 20th century history, starting with uh, German history, but eventually gravitating more to work on Russian and Soviet history. And um, having had the pleasure to study uh, Russian and Soviet history with uh, Professor Steve Kotkin there, uh, I became interested both in the history of sort of a Moscow-centric uh, Russia or a, a really Russian-Soviet Union. But I also became interested in places where the Soviet Union also had a massive influence on people, even if it wasn't within core regions of, of Russia um, itself. And um, ended up going off to Oxford later to do my doctoral work and um, was interested in pursuing a project that would have to do with Russian and Soviet history, something in the 20th century. But I was also looking for ways to combine Russian history with something else that would be a bit further afield. Uh, so that's kind of how I went down the track of, uh, of my education at first, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, uh, I'm heading out to LA <laughs> very, very <laughs> soon. I spend a lot of time in uh, Southern California at the, the Reagan Library hmm. uh, and so forth. My sister lives out there. Um, it never ceases to amaze me, the traffic. <laughs> I just, I can't, I can't get over it. Um, but it, but anyways, uh, to start with, I was I was wondering if you could uh, we would start the interview with a basic understanding of just of, of the history of, of 20th century Afghanistan to get us into uh, where you start the book. Sure, sure. Well, I think like many people, uh, when I first started thinking about this topic, uh, this country, this place, um, it was largely through the lens of many cliches that have accumulated largely through the encounters of Afghanistan and a Kabuli state with the British Empire and with uh, South Asia, uh, with Raj. That is to say, a picture of Afghanistan that, that looks at as, as this place as variously a failed state, um, the graveyard of empires, of course, a place where typically English-speaking armies go in first, uh, manage to conquer the country for a little bit, uh, then get beaten back and leave, and then the Soviets come in sometime, sometime later. That is to say that the main picture I had of the place was basically this graveyard of empires narrative. It was through the lens of these moments of military invasion uh, and then wars of attrition and then people leaving. But I didn't really have uh, much background and much knowledge in terms of, you know, the fact that most of the for most of the 20th century, Afghanistan was at peace, not with war with other countries. I, I, I didn't have a very good understanding of what had happened um, in between. And I, I suppose just to provide a, a brief overview, or at least what's salient for the purposes of the book, is Afghanistan is, a, in effect, a British protectorate from the late 
uh, 19th century, after the Anglo-Afghan War in the 1870s, um, until 1920 uh, or so, when towards the end of the First World War, uh, the Afghans uh, launch an attack on the British Empire in South Asia. And although there, there's no threat of them overrunning places like Lahore or the Punjab, uh, the British conclude a treaty uh, with the Afghans, the Treaty of Rawalpindi, that makes Afghanistan um, independent in the sense that Afghanistan can control its own foreign affairs and it can establish independent diplomatic liaisons with foreign countries in a way that it hadn't been able to from the 1870s until 1920. Furthermore, the British uh, drop an annual subsidy that they had been paying to the government of Afghanistan from that period onward. So now for Afghan despots trying to run their country and trying to suppress rebellions, they don't automatically get this British paycheck every month uh, to run to create a, a factory to produce machine guns. Um, uh, the, these kinds of uh, these kinds of uh, domestic techniques of repression. And so from 1920 onwards, essentially, Afghanistan begins to enter this uh, paradigm through which I think it's familiar for us to understand it uh, today. They're constantly tilting one way or the other. Uh, the one day it's the Soviet Union, the next day it's the Nazis, the next day it's the Americans, the next day it's the Soviet Union again. And lo and behold, uh, now they've, they've managed to do it again uh, by pivoting and trying to present Afghanistan as this, uh, as either you know the most important place in the world where world security is threatened, and either the Russians are going to come to the Persian Gulf or uh, the British Empire is going to collapse, and so on. So after 1920, Afghanistan begins to move towards this, this role in which, they're, in which elites, Afghan elites, many of whom have command of foreign languages, many of whom have studied abroad, et cetera, uh, begin to liaise with foreign clients. And after the early 1920s, that is really in particular the Soviet Union. When Afghanistan becomes independent in terms of having a foreign policy after the Treaty of Rawalpindi, it's the Soviet Union that's the first country to recognize the independent Afghan state and begins providing much aid to it already in the 1920s. So when I, be, I, I think once we, once we begin to appreciate this fact that, you know, not only is Afghan independence um, a, a sort of contingent fact that's only a relatively recent um, factor, but also the fact that for Afghan elites, uh, the way in which one typically approached the Soviet Union was not this country that was invading you or conquering you, but rather in some sense a country that allows you entry into the international system. Because once Moscow starts recognizing Kabul, actors of the 20s and 30s, like Berlin, like Italy, and so on, start recognizing Afghanistan as well. And so Afghanistan moves away by the late 20s and the 30s from this country that had been basically a British protectorate to what we would dub today a very weak state, but one that still maintains a wide variety of foreign relations with, uh, with the great powers of the day, whether it's the Soviets, the Nazis, uh, or the, you know, the Americans later. Yeah, that's interesting, and it's an important point. And I, I learned a lot from that uh, the way you, the way you frame that. I wasn't aware of some of the stuff. Um, never got it during my, my course of study. So it's very it's very interesting from that angle. And I just before we move on, I think I think it's also important to point out before we get into the, to the the nuts and bolts of the book to make sure the, the listeners understand what this book is and it isn't. Right. I think you, you do that very well in the beginning. You write, and you can correct me if I'm, I'm not getting the, the the full picture that yeah. this is not. A, a Cold War history. I mean, the Cold War is certainly touched upon, but it's it's uh, a book that looks at Afghanistan through the prism of development and humanitarianism that looks at it from a different angle. I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about how you frame the book and what it is and, and what it isn't. Absolutely. I, I, I think that uh, to come back to the, to the kinds of tropes and uh, one might say cliches with which we typically approach uh, Afghan history and thinking about how Afghanistan has related to the world, um, 
I mean, with, with the great game paradigm, the idea of Afghanistan as this battleground of empires, one form of historical writing that this paradigm tends to generate is, you know, the, the why did they invade Afghanistan uh, question. And it's and there are many very good books that touch on this question to examine why the British invade Afghanistan um, in the 19th century, why the Soviets invade Af Afghanistan in 1979. Um, books like Bill Dalrymple's Return of a King, which came out recently and is terrific on the former question. And there are many other books, among them um, chapters and books by Odd Arnie Vest. Kalinowski that touch much more in a much more detailed way on the question of why the Soviets invade Afghanistan. However, when I was approaching this topic, I, I knew that that story had already been written. And I didn't want to write that kind of book a second time. What interested me, me much more was a ground level picture of what development and humanitarianism meant for Afghanistan. That is to say, to bring foreigners into the picture, to bring Soviets, British, American, German, and NGOs into the picture. But to dwell less on you know, th this question of why do we enter Afghanistan or, or what are the geopolitical considerations of the day, and to look more and to kind of produce a biography of specific places in Afghanistan, like places like Paktia in the east, Kandahar in the south, or Mazar-e-Sharif in the north, and take a really long, well, relatively long array perspective of several decades to see how these specific places in Afghanistan changed as the forms of foreign engagement with them changed from states uh, like the Soviet Union and American aid of the 1950s and 1960s to a form of NGO-led uh, humanitarianism that's much more familiar to us today through organizations like the Swedish Committee for Afghanistan or Doctors Without Borders. So this is not really a history of Afghanistan as a geopolitical object, or at least primarily as a geopolitical object. Uh, that's incredibly important for Afghanistan's history. And obviously, on some fundamental level, it was geopolitical considerations that brought many hackers into Afghanistan into the first place. But this book kind of puts that a bit in the background and tries to make the story more about Afghanistan itself and how foreigners are interacting with Afghans in the Afghan state on the ground. So this is not a story of what's happening in the Politburo in Moscow or in the Situation Room in Washington. It's a story of what's happening in places like Pakia, Kandahar, Kabul, etc. in Afghanistan across a span of about five or six decades in the 20th century. Yeah, it provides a much needed perspective. I I really enjoyed reading it, and you're right, there are a lot of good books, and the subject has been treated in a lot of areas about the geopolitical aspects of the struggle. But to, to, I mean, to, to build on what you're saying, to get, in, to get into the book, you talk about, you know, presumably foreigners are coming to Afghanistan, you, the question comes, what, what might they know or not know about Afghanistan? And yeah. you, make this, you make this argument in chapter one, you build on this idea of what, especially what, what Soviet scholarship about the region understood and what it didn't understand. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, of course. So it's important to say from the start that the so people oftentimes neglect the fact that the Soviet Union had a massive area studies apparatus that in certain regards was much larger, more productive, and I dare to say better uh, in terms of the quality of scholarship than area studies scholarship produced by either the United States or European countries during the Cold War. Now, that's not obviously true for every single country in the world. American scholarship on Mexico, you know, all things being equal, is probably better than Soviet scholarship. But especially for countries that were next to the Soviet Union or where the Soviet Union had a significant um, foreign policy investment, so Afghanistan would be one, Eastern Europe, uh, China for a large period, India, they generated a tremendous amount of knowledge and scholarship about these ethnic groups, about the geography, about the economics of the place. And so whereas American Afghan studies for much of the 20th century was a relatively marginal discipline, 
Um, Soviet Afghan studies was very well funded. There were several, there were chairs devoted to it. Uh, far more books were produced on it during the, during the Cold War than any equivalent in the Western world. Now, the question then becomes, what kinds of paradigms for understanding the country did this produce? In other words, did the Soviets understand Afghanistan and the people who live in it in some different way from this, this great game paradigm or, or from how American or British scholars uh, are investigating it? And the question that I, the answer that I offer in the book is that they are, but they're also missing important aspects of the picture that I hope in some ways can tell us or inform us about the blind spots that we have today when we try to understand this place. Um, and in the book, and I'm sure we'll get into this in, into more detail, I argue that there's a lack of substantive engagement with Afghan state claims that Afghanistan is a Pashtun ethnic state. So that was a lot, those were a lot of words that, that people, that might not mean anything. So what do these specific concepts mean? Um, as I show in the book, and of course, maps are a big theme here, um, Afghanistan is a multi-ethnic state. Um, no reliable poll or no reliable um, um, uh, population survey has ever been conducted of Afghanistan in its, in its entire history, but the most educated guesses would say that the Pashtun nation, if you like, or the Pashtun nationality accounts for between, say, 40 to 55 percent uh, of the population. And traditionally, people from this Pashtun ethnic group who speak a language that is within the same language family as Persian, but is not the same as Persian, have ruled the state. However, it gets complicated because this Pashtun nationality, even though it's the largest group inside of Afghanistan, is actually outnumbered by Pashtuns who live in the territory that today constitutes Pakistan. And so I argue in the book that Soviet scholars, in part because there's a lack of serious institutionalization of the Pashtun language, of the ethnography of Pashtun peoples, what it means for an Afghan state to claim to be a Pashtun nation state, it becomes very hard for Soviet scholars to to break down these Afghan state claims that they're a Pashtun state, or that they want the Pashtuns in Pakistan to have their own country or possibly be annexed to Afghanistan itself. It becomes very easy for scholars, whether they're very supportive of Pakistani claims or whether they're saying, hey, we should give more aid to Afghans. Who cares about this Pashtun stuff? Who cares if they're chauvinistic nationalists? They kind of overlook this issue. And I argue in the book that this really blows up in many Soviet area scholars' faces in 1978 and 1979, even though, it, although this issue of this place, Pashtunistan, which we'll get to, and Pashtun nationalism remains a very difficult issue for foreign scholarship to grasp, whether it's Soviets or Americans today. Yeah, it is. And I, once again, I learned a lot about the, the debates and how it plays into with the debates about the borders with Pakistan and what the Afghanistan nation's borders actually are, what they should be. And we'll get even get into it, the idea of what, you know, borders are somehow drawn on a map but have no real reality. Uh, but but to, to get back to your book, I was wondering, I mean, you, you raised the issue as a, as a good segue into how things blow up in people's faces when they come into Afghanistan. And in chapter two, you talk about this development moment. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could just, we could go through and look at the various ways that development projects that were, remain under the assumption that you have a state that comes in and develops a country, how they either worked or didn't work in, in Afghanistan. Yeah. So one, one broad theme in this book, and that I think chapter two is, is sort of the first uh, part of, um, is in the 1950s and 1960s in particular, Afghanistan receives more foreign aid per capita than any other country in the world. So if we want to understand what this international or, or global, if you like, developmental moment is actually about, Afghanistan is a pretty good place to look at. Likewise, in the 1980s, Afghanistan is one of the first theaters where transnational humanitarian NGOs 
really burst onto the scene. So even though we tend to think of Afghanistan as marginal or, or parochial in some sense, I'm trying to make the case that it's actually quite central uh, if we want to understand the intellectual history of development and humanitarianism in the modern world. But uh, to the question and to this moment of the mid-50s and, and 60s, um, so we talked earlier about how Afghans gained foreign policy independence in 1920 from the British. Um, however, uh, when Pakistan is formed out of the collapsing British Empire in 1947, this border between the two countries that had never been really formalized as being an official border, the border that today, if you look at most maps, is the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, so-called Durand Line, it becomes sort of a meaningful question because the Pakistani government says, well, this is our state, this is our border, uh, we consider this border legitimate. Um, but Afghan governments begin um, protesting this. They begin saying that, hey, actually Afghanistan is a Pashtun state or it claims some kind of representation uh, for Pashtuns living in Pakistan. Now, this kind of debate, and this comes back to an earlier question of yours, this question of whether Pashtuns like, say, Kurds or Palestinians or any other ethnic group in the world that doesn't have its own state or doesn't think that it has its own state and the borders that it should be, this is not a primarily Cold War issue, right? These issues continue to this day, and we don't interpret them primarily through Russian-American antagonism. But in the 1950s, uh, in a world of decolonization and in a world where both the Soviet Union and the United States are jockeying for influence throughout the Third World, this becomes a fault line across which powers in both the West and the Soviet East, if you like, begin to, to differ. So after Afghans begin to petition the American government for military aid, which is refused, the Soviets swoop in and begin training the Afghan officer corps, and they begin building these infrastructure projects, primarily in the north of the country, but they also build the northern half of a ring road that connects Afghanistan and serves as the country's primary highway today. The Americans, and to a lesser extent, the West Germans come in on the other side, and they say, well, we, we can't have Afghanistan become a 16th Soviet republic. There are these fears about how Afghanistan is going to become a Soviet colony, again, alluding to Afghanistan's marginal sovereignty within the international system. And so the Americans and Germans begin constructing these development projects of, of canals and drainage projects for agricultural programs in the south of the country, the areas that are most associated with the opium trade today. But they also begin working with less familiar projects, such as cedar forests, Himalayan cedar forest uh, plantations and projects um, in eastern Afghanistan, thinking... This is going to help Afghanistan develop more quickly. The economy will grow. Therefore, there won't be any appeal of communism. And this is a period where there's a small Afghan communist party, but what's growing. Now, to connect this to the first chapter, what I argue in that second chapter is that even though both the Soviets and the Americans all think that they're participating in this one game of national development and Afghanistan is going to enter into socialism very soon or it's going to have such great economic growth that there won't be any temptation for it to become a socialist country, they're actually being sucked into this Pashtun nationality debate as well. Because when the Afghan government comes to these parties, in particular the Americans and the Germans, they want them to build these projects in areas that are heavily Pashtun populated areas of southern and eastern Afghanistan, in Kandahar, well, in Helmand rather, and in Pakia, respectively. And the idea is if foreigners into the country and get them to improve the infrastructure in these areas, it'll make Afghanistan look like a more competent protector, if you like, a more, more competent guardian of Pashtun national interests than the Pakistani state, which at that time still continues to have very repressive policies uh, towards Pashtuns who live in the western borderlands of Pakistan. Now, in the end, none of this worked. The development projects in the south and the east were, I think, failures on their own terms. But in large part, throughout these years, uh, this idea of Afghanistan as a Pashtun state 
gains popularity among the intelligentsia of the country, in particular the left-leaning intelligentsia of the country, such that by 1978, when that Communist Party is able to take power, Afghanistan has become, or parts of the intelligentsia have become saturated with this idea that you know, national justice would really entail having a war against Pakistan or having all of these 40 million Pashtuns live in the same state. But when they come into power, they're inheriting a state with really minimal state capacity and where its ability to affect uh, development in the provinces is quite weak. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting angle. And I think what, what other these chapters three into four, chapters three into four also raise the issue of when you're looking at the failure of these development projects that are supposed to, you know, be a, a blueprint to project Afghanistan into some sort of modernity, yeah. uh, you carry out a wide array or a wide array of uh, oral interviews. You you get the feelings of people on the ground, and yeah. then I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how you used uh, your sources and research to construct your arguments. Sure, sure. Well, this is uh, this is a book that relies primarily on Soviet sources. Uh, there are a lot of Afghan sources in this book, but because of security concerns, I wasn't able to travel to use the National Archives in Afghanistan, although much of the relevant materials for the 60s, 70s, and especially the 80s have been destroyed. Uh, the, the flip side is that a lot of Afghan materials have been digitized and are available uh, through the diaspora around the world. But essentially, this is a book that started out as a primarily Soviet view into development in Afghanistan. And so I spent a lot of time sifting through the various archives of the Ministry of the Economy, Party Ministries, the Ministry of Education, and so on, to find these, these sources for how the Soviet state and Soviet state agencies in particular looked at development. But I was very lucky when I was in Moscow and that I was working at an archive that is for the youth organization of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union called Komsomol. And I was in Moscow at a time when many of the files for Komsomol's aid missions to Afghanistan in the 1980s had just been declassified. And so I was able, much to my surprise and, and delight in a sense, um, to find about these places like Tora Bora that I had heard, you know, when Osama bin Laden was being hunted for there in 2001 and 2002. And I could find, lo and behold, Soviet advisors who were dealing with these questions of, boy, how do we get these 10-year-old the, these kids in Tora Bora, Afghanistan, uh, to join the Communist Party of, of the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, as it was called? More than that, um, the people who had participated in these aid missions formed a kind of alumni community of their own. Uh, There's a very nice, glossy book that they had produced with a lot of information about where these people lived, what they did, and so on. And through a mix of, uh, I mean, detective work, I think, would be the positive spin on it, and stalking would be the negative one. Um, I was able to track down a lot of these people, um, mostly Russian uh, advisors who had served in Afghanistan in the 80s, but some belonging to the generation before who had been in Kabul in the 50s and 60s. And then further, I was able to travel to much of ex-Soviet Central Asia, to countries like Tajikistan and Uzbekistan today, and there to interview the translators, people who are Tajiks or Uzbeks, but who hence often spoke uh, the same Persian language or Tajik language, if you like, that's spoken as a, either as a first or second language by the majority of the population of Afghanistan. So I was able to get this view that I hope at least combined a vision of how does the Soviet state view development uh, with how the Soviet advisors on the ground uh, view development. And then to provide a bit of a personal touch, too, to say, you know, what does this actually mean? When we advertise something like the Peace Corps today, when we say that people should go work for an NGO today um, and, you know, work with refugees who are coming from Syria, uh, a lot of this relies on certain visions of what is a good life? What is what is morality? What responsibilities do we have to people who live outside of the borders uh, of our own country? But I think that, that very little attention had gone to how people in the Soviet Union or Russia today, you know, think about uh, Syria, 
how they view their own sense of an international responsibility. And so those oral history sources that I got from Soviet actors later came really in handy, and I, I hope at least uh, helped provide a kind of comparative intellectual history of how different people around the world at this moment where development was really breaking down, at least as conceived as a state-led project, how they all reflected on development, both Soviets as well as European NGO actors as well. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. And when you when you get into the specifics of the stuff in chapters three and four and on through your book, one of the issues that you deal with, the, at least from, from my view, that, that raises all sorts of issues is this issue of sovereignty. Absolutely. Is the, is the issue of how to both establish authority or where establish, or authority is established in the minds of people, but actually on the ground, things are things are much different. <laughs> the issue of borders existing, but maybe not existing in practice in the minds of people. I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about how your story or, or your book, excuse me, develops or it touches on the issues of sovereignty as part of your story of uh, development issues. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 as I was looking through files, both in the Soviet Union, but especially later as I came to work in NGO archives in Paris and um, in Stockholm, working with the archives of the two largest NGOs to operate in the country in the 1980s, I was really struck looking at the very early history of these Western NGO organizations and looking at the kinds of debates and the kinds of precedents that they relied on to justify entering Afghan territory. Now, many of these Western NGO actors uh, came out of a tradition that in the early 1970s would have been, I think, surprisingly close to the Soviet position on many issues when it came to third world liberation movements. So broadly, the line here would be that the American intervention in Vietnam is an imperialist war and the Vietnamese people have the right to have their own country. Um, apartheid is a disgrace uh, to the international system, and the ANC should be able to rule South Africa, uh, that Zionism or that the Israeli state is fundamentally illegitimate, and that the Palestinians should have their own state, et cetera, et cetera. And more than that, there are all these other groups that we tend to forget about today, liberation movements in Namibia, and what was then Rhodesia, um, et cetera, et cetera. This view that if only imperialism could be driven back and all these left-wing anti-colonial movements could have their own state, their own nation-state represented at the United Nations, this would sort of mean true global justice. And finally, we would live in a world without imperialism. The, the proliferation of the nation-state as this, this vision of, of, of a good compromise between political authority and manageability. Um, however, I argue, and, and I would say that I think more research is needed in this direction to, to flesh out and add some subtlety to some of the lines that I've drawn in this book, but I argue that by the late 1970s, this debate became muddled very quickly for a number of reasons. Uh, once the Vietnamese successfully kicked out the Americans and the South Vietnamese and took over the entire country, you had what was known as the boat people crisis, where many ethnic Chinese, but also people who had been affiliated with the South Vietnamese regime were literally driven onto boats, uh, dinghies in the South China Sea. Many of them drowned. Some others were taken up as refugees throughout the country. Um, and, and this, I think, spurred a lot of people to action, saying, well, hey, we thought the Vietnamese were terrific people fighting in the rice paddies against the white man, against these white American imperialists. Uh, but actually, yeah. it turns out that they're killing more people in some cases than the American uh, occupation had. Um, likewise, I think, and something that I, I gloss in this book, but I think is also very important, is for many European actors, although less so Soviet actors, the 1970s, and in particular this period of the mid and late 1970s, is a period where the Holocaust is rediscovered as a uniquely European burden. And there's this idea that Europeans, especially Western Europeans, not so much Soviets, have a special responsibility to protect or prevent a second Holocaust from taking place anywhere else in, in the world. And so I think a good example of this is in the early 1970s, uh, Swedish politicians like the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palma 
uh, can compare the American occupation of Vietnam with Treblinka and Auschwitz and say, look, this is the exact same thing. And these bombing, these bombings of North Vietnam are, are the same as concentration and extermination camps. Later, however, less than a decade later, you find top Swedish politicians applying this logic in reverse, saying, look, we have a we have a responsibility to pre prevent a Holocaust from happening. And so we need to uh, break third world sovereignty. We need to enter Afghanistan to help the Afghan people who are being occupied uh, not only by the Soviet Union, but by this fundamentally alien socialist government. But broadly, so broadly, the point is that by the late 1970s, many people who had started out the 1970s by being on board with this project of left wing socialist states embedded in the UN being a being a sort of hallmark of legitimacy. By the end of the 1970s, they'd adopted a very early position of what we would dub humanitarian intervention, whereby the, the mere fact of a country being socialist or being occupied by a socialist country um, meant that it was ripe for humanitarian intervention. Um, it didn't mean, you know, you could you could cross state borders without there being any moral issue. And so this book obviously focuses on Afghanistan. But I think another area where which would where, where I would welcome historical investigation. Some of the subtleties could be fleshed out here would be humanitarian operations into occupied Cambodia, which was occupied by the Vietnamese government yeah. throughout the 1980s. But the, the broad point is these are both theaters for people who started out being on the anti-colonial left begin to think through these issues of, well, is the point total political independence or socialism uh, or having a state at the UN, what's actually the right barometer for, for social justice and, and legitimacy, uh, as you say? And that's a fundamentally political question, but, but this book goes to show how, how tortured that became in an arena like Afghanistan in the 1980s. It's a very important question. Uh, that part of the book really made me think about a lot of issues uh, in my research and just, just the world in general. I mean, you compare it at some level to this kind of the failure of the third world state, yeah. uh, this idea that, you know, these states that were supposed to bring social justice to the world often <laughs> didn't, didn't bring social justice. And it reminded me when, my, my, when I wrote uh, one of my books in my, my dissertation that you talk about Sweden and Norway, and, or not so much, you can talk more about Sweden, but like this, the, the Norwegian government in, I believe, the early 80s, like put the Soviet Union on trial for essentially like a, a borderline trial to see if they committed genocide in Afghanistan. Yep. The, the Norwegian government. And that's something that wouldn't have been, you know, conceivable earlier. Yeah, I, I, well, um, I, I, a phrase that a, um, a terrific historian of the British Empire used when I was presenting this book, uh, Amanda Bame at um, Yale University, is uh, she dubbed this the, the inversion of black on white or, or kind of white on black. I, I basically argue in the book that there have been all these institutions that we tend to forget about, like the Special Rapporteur uh, Institution or in, regimes of international humanitarian law. Uh, there were all these regimes of, of sovereignty or limited sovereignty developed at the United Nations in the 1970s that were primarily and originally used to attack countries like apartheid-era South Africa, uh, like the state of Israel, uh, like the United States, um, et, et cetera. But in a very quick turn by the early 1980s, a lot of these institutions that had been originally designed to affirm Palestinian or Namibian, say, or, or South African, black South African sovereignty, were flipped and were used to essentially put Afghans and Soviets uh, on trial uh, with the Swedes and, and Scandinavians really taking the lead on this. So, yeah. yeah, it's an it's an interesting story. And another part of your, your book that caught my eye, and we, you can talk about it a little bit if you want, is the emphasis on uh, the youth in this, uh, yeah. this story about how people tried to mobilize the youth as part of their their modernization project, especially the Soviets, obviously. Yeah. 
And I was wondering if you'd say more about what I had this this image in my mind pop up during your book about the the children are future. Let them lead the way type, <laughs> yeah. type of type of moment. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about where that fits into your story. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's indicative that, um, you know, the night and this is a field that I think is just beginning to to emerge is the, the international history of the 1980s and how the development literature of the 60s and 70s fits into it. But it's it's not a coincidence, I think, that one of the most emblematic uh, images of Afghanistan from this period is that is that little girl with the striking eyes uh, looking into the camera. I mean, that's less of a humanitarian image, but this strong image of children as the as the national future um, in some way. Now, I, I think that the role that this takes on in the book or the argument that I'm trying to make um, is on one level, there is, again, this shift from a uh, guerrilla, if you like, or a guerrilla driven left wing imaginary uh, from the 1970s to something that is much more focused on women and children and humanitarian images uh, by the 1980s and, and later. Uh, as I noted earlier, many of these activists from the European left, if you like, many of, some of whom had been parts of the European Maoist movement, um, many of them in the 1970s openly championed uh, guerrilla movements, uh, most obviously those in, um, uh, in, in Vietnam, uh, but also movements like the Tupamaros in, in South America, um, uh, let's see, uh, Iranian guerrilla movements, et cetera, et cetera, as this privileged actor in history. Uh, and there was still this sense that, you know, human nature was perfectible and maybe state socialism had failed, but this new, preferably, you know, black or African or Asian guerrilla fighter uh, was really the privileged historical actor. You know, this, the Algerian or the Vietnamese or the Cuban fighter and no longer the Soviet factory worker. Um, but what I, think I, what I think I have seen in the archives and, and what I try to explain in humanitarian invasion is that precisely for the reasons discussed earlier, where this project of Vietnamese socialism turns out to become genocidal and occupies countries itself, the project of Algerian socialism begins to sputter in these years too. Uh, Cuba begins sending foreign missions to places like Angola and so on. The, all these old images of the guerrilla fighter or the third world, you know, the third world guy with the bandana and the AK-47, they begin to lose a lot of traction as sort of the superhero, if you like, of, of a global moral consciousness. And uh, to some extent, following the lead of scholars like Samuel Moyne, who's written on the, the rise of human rights, although my story is a bit different from that, I, I see that by the early 80s, many of these groups begin turning more to emphasize uh, children and, and women, and in particular, the, you know, the, these, these stateless children who are not grounded in any national context as, as sort of the people on whose behalf we have, we have to intervene. Um, so there's a kind of inversion of these visions of the future or who is standing in for a political vision of the future. Um, now, I think the contrast, and one of the things I tried to draw out through the second half of the book, is that this is not the same imaginary that the Soviets are drawing on. And I think this is important when we think today about the images that are being circulated as a conflict in Syria, too, because I mean, one of, the, one, of the, one of the messages I'm trying to reach in this book is it's not productive for international order, and it's not productive for international conflict resolution, especially in conflicts against Russia, just to, to pump out pictures of, of, of starving children. I mean, as terrible as that may be, but we need to understand sort of what, what are the ideological stakes uh, behind the, these images. Because on the Soviet side, during the 1980s, the Soviets intervened massively, uh, trying to create this huge or youth organization. Uh, they yeah. begin creating this vast orphanage system for Afghan kids. They start sending them to the Soviet Union, often with the purpose of creating a socialist Afghan elite. And as I argue in the book, a couple of decades earlier in the 1950s, after Europe had been shattered by war and after there was a strong need to great, strong national states, this idea that you can move children around or, or strictly nationalize children and say, okay, you're going to become a, a member of this, of this nation, even if you have 
even if your parents' nationality is muddled. That was really, really very much taken for granted. But drawing on, on the work of people like Tara Zara, I try to show in this book um, how the Soviets remained fixated with this vision of children as part of a discrete national future whose, whose destinies and whose rights still had to be mm, protected or supported within a nation-state-based framework, within the moral boundaries of the third world nation-state, if you like. Whereas for these European actors, there was kind of this explosion of, of the moral boundaries, the idea that children anywhere uh, had rights that had to be protected. So, you know, and these are the years in which crimes such as incest and child abuse and child labor are entering international law as, as things that should always be illegal in spite of national traditions or in spite of national economic circumstances. This idea of child as a kind of international bearer of, of human rights in a way that should transcend national tra transitions, uh, national uh, borders, excuse me. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Samuel Moy. I'm glad you mentioned that there. I thought that some of the, the stuff you used was similar. I mean, it's a different argument and yeah. you go in different directions, but there, I think it's an interesting argument to make. Um, kind of this decline in the in the in the state as this agent of, of salvation. I mean, I'm being a little bit dramatic here, but move to this new humanitarianism as a way to kind of right the wrongs of the world instead of relying on the nation state. You rely on international law and kind of this good work of NGOs who will come in and, you know, right the ship. And I also what I also found interesting about your your stuff on children is the shift in the the image of kind of from you were talking about earlier from this bandana wearing guerrilla warfare to the image of victimhood yes. as uh something that's played up to defend uh, interventions. Certainly, certainly there, there there is oh, a sorry. I'm sorry the well, so certainly this, this shift from from uh, from the guerrilla to, to this victimhood uh, narrative is, is important. But as, as I try to show in, in the book, um, you know, without I, I, I didn't write this book to, to slam um, NGOs. And I, and I would add that the staff at the uh, the archives of, of MSF in Paris and in particular at the Swedish Committee for Afghanistan were, were just terrific and, and really very open in a model of openness when it comes to their archives. What I try to show is that there was always a certain tension between you know, how do we generate these images of, of kids inside of this country if we're claiming that state sovereignty matters in some sense? And so in many cases for these groups uh, like MSF and like the Swedes um, to get access to places where they can take photographs of Afghan children inside of Afghanistan or where they can prove that there are medical crises among Afghans um, inside of the country, they obviously have to embed themselves um, in these Islamist armies, uh, something we haven't talked about uh, so much yet. These Islamist armies that are part of this anti-communist reaction in Afghanistan from the 70s onwards and enter into Afghanistan. And so they're operating in this rather, I think, morally difficult terrain where on the one hand, they're saying, you know, this, this typically secular uh, national liberation fighter is no longer valid as, as a vision of human freedom. And instead, we're just going to try to expose bodily wounds or we're going to try to find children who have been psychologically traumatized. And again, this is a period where trauma is rehabilitated as a, as a clinical diagnosis in many European countries. And you can begin to say that trauma is actually a form of, of abuse and hence a reason to suspend national sovereignty. Um, and you know we can agree or disagree with whether those are, are sensible positions or not. But part of what I try to show in the book is that many of these NGOs end up walking this very tight line between saying, we've embraced this new figure of innocence, no longer the Algerian or the Cuban or the Chinese guerrilla fighter, uh, but rather the, this broken, uh, orphaned, um, et cetera, et cetera, child uh, outside of their state um, uh, and, and so on. But in order to do that, they end up partnering with a new kind of guerrilla movement, namely these Islamist militias who have very little interest in establishing a, um, a what the what Europeans at least would recognize as a democratic Afghan nation state. Um, 
and um, you, you know whose whose commitments to uh, to women's rights or um, uh, you know the entire menu of uh, kind of liberal democracy are, are, are questionable in, in many cases. So one of the issues that this book delves into is um, you know was this was this sort of uh, moral turn of the left um, you know this this turn that that uh, that Sam identifies in his book. Um, you know, was it a mistake uh, in the 1980s, not just for the United States and Saudi Arabia to support the Mujahideen, this familiar Cold War story that people like Steve Cole had told, but also th this turn away from, you know, commitment to international socialism and, and from the third world state to children and so on. I tried to show how in the Afghan case, this is a really complicated and morally wrenching case. And while I'm not out to indict, um, you know, MSF or, or the Swedes uh, for, for this, uh, I, I merely intend to illustrate how this, uh, this attempt to escape this realm of politics of socialism versus capitalism, NATO versus the Warsaw Pact, into a realm of humanitarianism, into a realm of pure morality, was itself wrapped with political shifts about what the position of left-wing activists towards um, Islamist groups, Sunni Islamist groups, should be. Yeah, it's plenty of tough questions to sort out, and you and you, you raise the issue debates people had, and the warnings in some instances yep. people had about about what what, the, what was going on in Afghanistan that policymakers didn't really want to listen to. Uh, what I also find is I just I can't I thought of a great part of your book uh, was when the the story that the Americans when they got into the childhood image yep. game and, uh, brought Afghans over to. Uh, you know, go to hospitals in Texas and uh, yeah. playing up. They're being rehabilitated. I love the part. Uh, was it Victoria, Texas, where they went yeah, to Walmart? Victoria. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to go to Walmart when you come over, I guess. I mean, uh, it's uh, so it's, that, I, it's really yeah. an unbelievable story. And I'm, I'm trying to work on a um, extension to this for, for an article. And I had the chance to go to um, uh, I apologize if I botched the uh, I apologize to the residents if I botched the pronunciation, but uh, Nacogdoches. Texas uh, to um, Stephen F. Austin University, where the papers of Congressman Charlie Wilson uh, are held, who masterminded many of these these schemes, not just the, the supply of weapons from the Jahadeen, but perhaps to his credit, these these just do we know what we're talking about? These schemes to to take Afghan orphans and Afghan Mujahideen fighters uh, to these clinics, these medical clinics and hospitals, primarily in Texas, but also across much of the United States uh, in the 1980s. And I remember. Um, uh, seeing in these files, not only these, cra I, I was, I, I thought this was just crazy when I saw it at first, because as you said, these Afghan kids were taken not only to medical facilities, but also to Walmarts. Uh, they were taken to, you know, get Coke and Pizza Hut and, and all of that. Uh, and they were even taken to a private screening of uh, the Indiana Jones film Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, yes. So uh, really getting the full uh, cultural immersion <laughs> of all that, uh, all that American mass culture has to has to offer. Uh, but more than that, the adult Mujahideen fighters were actually taken to a gun show in uh, Dallas, where in some <laughs> cases they were given, um, you know, weapons by uh, some very enthusiastic Texans. Um, so, yeah. um, uh, so, so, I, I, you know, I, and obviously the, the irony could not be, you know, any richer with how the, how the position of, of many of these suburban, um, often Republican or right, right leaning voters uh, feel on, um, on the issues of Muslims with guns basically uh, shifts uh, over, over time, but uh, but yes, the Americans also get involved in this in this game of how can we justify moving kids around, or how can we criticize the Soviets for moving orphan children or children whose parents are still alive into um, the Soviet Union for education, and yet still do it uh, ourselves. And I argue that part of the answer is they too are resorting to this new uh, register of, of what I dubbed medicalized subjectivities. Uh, this idea that 
again, your your identity is not defined by you putting on the the the, uh, the bandana and carrying the AK on your back, uh, but rather by being wounded, by being traumatized, and by needing medical services that are not available in your your state whose development has failed. And hence, you can be now moved. Um, you know, we can move your body out of your national border into a third country like Pakistan and then move it into the United States. But again, I, I think to illustrate how tenacious some of these categories are, uh, the, the Houston case with these hospitals in Houston is even more bizarre because in many of these cases, these Afghans are taken to normal hospitals. But in the case of the Afghan children, they're taken to a rehabilitation facility, which didn't even have a license to, to handle these kinds of cases up until a couple of days before they were actually transferred there. And I think it was just something like a storage facility of a, of a rehabilitation center in a Houston suburb that was itself reclassified as a special medical facility. So, um, you know, not to say that all medicine is politics, but I'm, instead I'm trying to show that um, there's this constant resort to, uh, you know, medicalizing political issues or saying that uh, trauma or these wounds uh, justifies breaking national sovereignty and moving people around. Uh, but the, uh, I mean, beyond the Indiana Jones stuff, just the, the, the administrative uh, concepts and, and borders that are moved around are just clearly uh, very, uh, very uh, uh, pragmatic and, and very, uh, very spur of the moment. It's, it's very opportunistic is what I mean to say. Sure, sure. It's, it's, it's an interesting part of the book. And I had a flashback. It's not related that much, but I had the image of a Deng Xiaoping when he went to visit Texas. I believe it's Texas when he got into yeah. cowboy hats on and went around in the rodeo and yeah, yeah. Uh, all this stuff. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I, and, that, and I think it's chapter uh, uh, six or seven of the book. I mean, I, I try to show, and there, there are photos I found of Afghan children being taken to the Soviet Union for effectively homestays uh, to stay with Soviet families in Ukraine. And so what I'm trying to show again is, and, and this comes back to some of the themes we discussed earlier, is we can and we should write the history of Afghanistan's entanglement with the world through these negotiations of the Politburo or the National Security Council or, or what, what have you. Um, but Afghans have and continue to be deeply entangled with what we would see as domestic spaces, whether it's the rodeo or sitting down to enjoy, you know, Indiana Jones part part thirty, uh, or uh, <laughs> you know, or the boulder, the guy getting run up, or Indy, Indy getting uh, escaping out of the temple. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, they're constantly being articulated through these um, through these spaces that most people would identify as not part of the realm of foreign policy, and uh, you know, this is becoming, I think, tragically even more visible today as. You know, Afghans oh, yeah. are circulating as as refugees, and in many cases, getting sent back from from European countries. But you end up with them in these refugee centers that are in the middle, in many cases, of large European cities uh, that continue to have tourist trade and goes on. Yeah, it's tragic. Um, but I, I don't want to make it a, too abrupt a turn. But sure. I, I think at, at this point, what, what we should do before we finish off with the Soviet downfall in the yeah. '80s and, and and the issue of that, which is a good, obviously, a good part of the book. We should talk about your chapter number five on women. Yep. Uh, under the red veil, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what you generally find about this, the issue of, of development and humanitarianism and women in Afghanistan. Sure. Well, this is really the the part of the research that got me interested in the book and in the project in the first place. I, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, had uh, grown up in the United States and the West Coast in the in the nineties, uh, effectively, and I had a vague memory of the 1990s as this period where many American feminists would protest the Taliban's treatment of Afghan women, whereby, you know, women would be executed in stadiums, uh, the veil was, was often mandatory, um, you know, it was this, this barbaric place, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, so when I came across these Soviet archives looking at how Soviet 
feminists, how Soviet state-sponsored uh, women's groups interacted with Afghan socialist feminists, this seemed like a really opportune moment, a really opportune uh, mirror image, if you like, of the, of the stories that I had grown up on and to, to help situate and contextualize uh, our present obsession with um, you know, Afghan women's rights as the, the reason why Afghanistan needs to have some kind of semi-protectorate status. Um, so as I, as I try to illustrate in this chapter, the Soviets had long championed um, women's rights, although not using that, that term, uh, throughout the 60s and, and 70s, and Soviet women's groups had been interested in the Afghan women movement uh, throughout that period. And in many cases, Afghan women were being educated through this developmental moment. Um, many, much of the leader, uh, the, the leadership of the Afghan Communist Party typically married into secularized, educated uh, 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 wives um, who are very committed to this project. But as I try to show, even though that there might be some sim apparent similarities between you know, the Soviet commitment to unveiled Afghan women, to women working in the professional service, uh, and one should add here that, that probably more women were employed uh, in Kabul at any period in Afghan's history than in the 1980s than any other period. So in that sense, uh, this was a real thing. But as I try to show in the chapter, this, was, this really grew out of a, a specific vision of, of sort of women's subjectivity or, or, or what kind of subjectivity a women's movement should endorse that was very different from what was to come later. Um, so what I mean by this is that the, the, the attempt of women to enter the workplace and the attempt of women to, to become full participatory citizens in a, in a socialist economy was viewed as just part of a larger worker struggle. Um, to use another big word, the Soviets were not very good on what people today would call inter, uh, what is it, uh, trans, trans, uh, transsectional politics, right? You could be a woman, you could be in favor of women entering the workplace and in favor of women's advancement, but this was primarily subjected to uh, the struggle for the working class and the struggle to have a socialist Afghan state that was led through this combination of the working class and the intelligentsia. So a lot of the issues that today we would recognize as being specifically women's issues, like say, um, you know, uh, say rape or abuse within homes or, um, or, or, or women being pressured to burn themselves if they're, if they're divorced in certain countries uh, in Asia, this entire panoply of social justice issues that refers to women's issues as, as being unique and sort of sui generis and not subordinate to say a workers movement um, this is not something that the Soviets endorsed. They saw the women's movement as, as really part of this broader struggle uh, for Afghan workers and an Afghan working class writ large. And as I try to show in the book, this later became contested and challenged by a different vision of how Afghan women or the position of Afghan women should relate to uh, Western interventions. You have, you have Afghan women's leaders such as uh, Mina, the leader of this, uh, this other Afghan women's organization, Brawa, who travels to Europe and begins to present herself as, again, this, this sort of victim who has been uh, victimized by Soviet occupation, and she's not, she's not presenting herself as part of some working class or some person who's going to march in, in these marches with trade unions, but rather uh, as somebody who has her own sui generis women's problems. And this becomes seized upon uh, by European actors uh, in the 1980s. So I, broadly, and the point of this discussion is to illustrate how Afghan women have always been kind of marketed, whether by the Afghan state or the Soviet intervention, or even the intervention since 2001, as markers of progress of how Afghanistan is marching towards some supposedly more egalitarian future. But in many cases, these images that are being produced and the, the gains that are being marketed um, are oftentimes uh, tell more about the people who are producing the images than what's going on in Afghanistan itself. Uh, as many of my NGO informants were keen to tell me, um, you know, under the uh, under the Taliban, especially even in provinces like Kandahar and, and in eastern Afghanistan. 
they would run these school networks that educated uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands of school age girls throughout the, 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 the 1990s. And so this doesn't mean that the, the actions in Kabul, the executions of women uh, were a myth or, or a fiction uh, or, or something, but rather that the ways in which those images are marketed, uh, I think we have to look at them very carefully and, and scrutinize how they're being used to justify interventions into Afghan statehood. At least if we take you know, the idea of third world sovereignty as something substantial and say that you know, Afghan sovereignty should, should mean something. Yeah, it, they're interesting points. Uh, what, I, what I thought was, what struck me about the, the chapters is how women didn't often stay on the Soviet script yeah, <laughs> uh, when yeah, they, yeah. they actually got an audience. Uh, and the whole issue of women in education in Afghanistan is obviously still controversial with the acid in the face attacks and yeah. things like that. But it, it does raise issues about, you know, there's this disconnect between Western liberal democratic values and what goes on in the West, the rest of the world. It, it made me think about that. And what really drove home the point, which I would almost use this in a class. I mean, I, I found it so fascinating. I hope there's a video clip of this. You're, when you when you talk about the Oprah Winfrey example, right, of yeah. the of the woman in the, was it in the in the burqa or the whole the whole garb, and then she rips it off and she's got like a, a fancy Hillary Clinton style pantsuit on of some sort. Yeah, I think I think it was either a pant. This is a uh, this was a protest action against the Taliban, I believe, in 1999 or 2000 or, or sometime around then, maybe after the um, maybe after 9/11, but. Uh, yeah, where this this Afghan uh, woman um, at this event sponsored sponsored by Oprah at Madison Square Garden, uh, no less, comes on the stage and <laughs> in order to demonstrate her um, kind of uh, liberation, if, if you like, rips off the burqa and is dressed. I, I, think, I forget if it's either a pantsuit or you know uh, jeans and a, and a tank top or something like that. But um, this is, I mean, yeah, I mean, this really illustrates the, the the tension. I mean, the the Soviets would have said this is this is ridiculous and this is just an example of how. Uh, basically, the new left and its cultural politics has degenerated into supporting American imperialism. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and they would say, "Look, uh, if you want to remove the burqa, fine, you need to because you're, you're going to go work in a factory or as a secretary for this, you know, bloated uh, authoritarian bureaucracy. But you're going to do that as part of a broad working class movement. And you know, wearing a pantsuit or wearing you know jeans or, or hot pants or whatever, this has absolutely nothing to do with." Um, with advancing the interests of the working class and international yeah. proletarian movement. And um, so, again, this tension between whether, you know, again, to come back to this issue of intersectionality, if if sort of gender or or the women's movement has its own specific women's politics or whether, you know, what, what the relationship of a woman's politics um, should be in relationship towards a or the working classes uh, politics as well. And obviously, you know, with the primary season, some of these debates, uh, continue not to get too far uh, off track, but yeah. you know how how a women's movement should relate to a working class movement. Yeah, I mean they're 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 interesting questions, and they're no they're not exactly easy answers to come up with. Uh, but just to, I mean now you've I've taken a lot of your time, and it's 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 been very interesting to talk to you. But to, to finish up here, I was wondering if we could chapters. I wonder if we can go over chapter six and seven. Yeah. Uh, just, the failure of the Soviet modernization project. I mean, you really bring that home in the rise of the humanitarian intervention and the problems that humanitarian groups faced when they actually tried to do their work in Afghanistan. I mean, there's a lot of things we could go over in this chapter, but what I found interesting is this idea of uh, you use the Soviet border guard as an example of kind of the problems of yeah. these shifting borders and shifting sovereignties. And, you know, you get all these stateless people, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of. There's a lot of issues that go on in terms of how 
you had uh, all these difficulties in trying to figure out how to modernize Afghanistan, and eventually it falls to the Taliban. And I was wondering if you could say more about the, the, those chapters and your major arguments. Sure, sure. Uh, right, there's a lot. There's a lot to cover in there, but I guess just to um, to, to focus more on the, uh, the the final chapter of the book, uh, there I. I mean, that, that chapter is, is a bit more of a melange in that it's less focused on one specific region of the country. But I, I attempt to show how uh, Soviet advisors, including this, this gentleman, uh, Yuri Selnikov, who, um, who invited me to his home in Volgograd and who was an advisor in Kandahar, um, southern Afghanistan, in the mid-1980s. And he was very forthcoming with both his memoirs and a very long interview that we conducted about this problem of how in the world do you monitor the border of a country that the country itself doesn't recognize as its border. It's uh, <laughs> um, a good question. And uh, the answer is it's not easy. And as, as Salnikov eventually discovered, um, th- this whole vision uh, that the Soviets are able to enforce in the north of Afghanistan, which borders the Soviet Union, of having tens of thousands of uniformed border guards descend onto the country, not only descend onto the border of Afghanistan, but literally invade Afghanistan and declare northern Afghanistan inside of the country, like part of the extended Soviet border, that, that model is not reproducible when you are thousands of miles away from Tashkent, much less Moscow. And so these actors, these Soviet actors in southern Afghanistan, like Salnikov, are really left on an island. Uh, I, I'm reminded of one story that Salnikov told me, not to, not to delve too much into anecdotes, but they were trying to register people for the Afghan, uh, I forget if it's the army or the border guards in Kandahar, and he was saying that they only had one uniform for the entire region. Uh, one uniform for the entire Kandahar office. And so they ran across the problem of, okay, how do we how do we produce ID cards, much less passports, for these people to check everything? And the answer that they came across was, well, we'll just keep the uniform in a back courtyard. We'll bring these guys in, tell them to strip down, um, and then take a photograph of them in the uniform, strip it off, next guy comes through. Um, wow. but, but this itself, it, it, this might seem like a trivial point, but this shortage of uniforms that indicates that you're a member of a state and that you're a member of a state border guard thing is actually very significant. Because when you don't have uniforms, when you don't have passports, when you don't have ID cards, there's basically no difference between a border guard and a militia. Um, and that isn't, that's more or less what people like Salnikov in the south of Afghanistan end up endorsing, to begin ceding control of the border to these various Pashtun ethnic groups around Kandahar, uh, many of whom have their own internal disputes with one another. And this is part of the background out of which the Karzai family comes uh, from that era. Um, they began ceding the border and saying, OK, look, we're not even going to, to try to, to contest this as a state border. And it's just going to become this this kind of you know, ethnic battleground between uh, different Pashtun groups uh, on both sides of the, board, of the official border near um, between uh, Kandahar and Quetta um, in, uh, in, in Pakistan. And so the Soviets begin realizing that this is all uh, turning pear shaped very quickly and um, begin retreating. But the way that they attempt to do it um, is by legitimizing Afghanistan within this new regime of, of the United Nations and peacekeeping yeah. uh, regimes, too. And, and again, uh, I, would, I, I, would, I, I hope that if this book does anything, it'll inspire people uh, who are interested in international history and Cold War history to prove me wrong and find ways in which these other cases of peacekeeper regimes, whether in uh, Cambodia or Nicaragua, uh, uh, Namibia, if I'm not mistaken, are different or not different from what happens in Afghanistan during this period of the late 1980s. Um, so th- this new regime of UN peacekeepers gets instituted, but it's, it's woefully inadequate. Uh, the Durand line, if I'm not mistaken, is about 2,500 miles long, and they end up having about 50 peacekeepers uh, to guard that 2,500 miles between Afghanistan and Pakistan from border incursions from Mujahideen. So that's, that's clearly uh, completely inadequate. 
Um, the Afghan army obviously remains, even after the Soviets go, and the Afghan army um, surprises a lot of people by winning battles uh, with Mujahideen armies, and the Afghan government doesn't collapse as quickly as many people had anticipated. But as I try to show, these NGO groups that had made that initial compromise by working with Islamist militias, um, once they begin entering Afghanistan and controlling actual territory, they begin running into these familiar problems that we've seen. And, and I, I was like, surprised, and, and, and as a researcher, at least delighted to find that one of the first places where these NGO groups penetrated to were these uh, borderlands where the West German foresters had been in the 1960s. And in many yeah. cases, they find the archives of the forestry missions. So there was this real rich sense of, you know, just kind of one failure being, being you know, pancaked on top of one another um, in, in these regions. But predictably, once they start entering these territories and once these NGO groups begin to claim, um, you know, governance and sovereignty over um, land and territory within Afghanistan, uh, these NGO groups begin becoming sidelined. It's very difficult for them to, to try to, to say, okay, we're not going to work on women's projects or uh, we're going to provide preferential medical treatment to a guy who's a commander of your Mujahideen unit as opposed to just some general responsibility to heal everybody. And so these issues that I think had been able to be tabled about sovereignty and about the relationship of a kind of left-wing or ex-left-wing uh, European internationalism and, and kind of humanism, medical humanism, if you will, um, these come to the fore again in a way that, that the, 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 the location of them ha had, had put to the side in the 1980s once these humanitarian groups start controlling territory. And in part, I argue this, is, this, is, this results in what is a very chaotic situation in Afghanistan after the Mujahideen captured Kabul in April 1992, which is that most of the actual governance uh, in the country, at least if we measure governance in terms of schools and medicine, um, and obviously policing and, and, and military affairs through these militias um, is not performed by any state in Kabul. Uh, they, they, these NGO groups, in, in, in collaboration with these Mujahideen groups, uh, sack Kabul. They, they basically uh, end the existence of this uh, of this one Afghan state of this Republic of Afghanistan that had been existing. Um, and the next day, effectively, a new country or a new sort of vision of Afghanistan in the world is established as the Islamic State of Afghanistan, which goes on to exist until the Taliban capture Kabul about five years later. Um, so in, in many ways, this, this humanitarian invasion, as I dub it, is an answer not just to um, the Soviet vision of how third world states are supposed to exist in the world, right? This vision that we got from North Vietnam, that we got from the Palestinians, that we got from, from these other uh, groups of the nation state, uh, of a, a liberal nation state oftentimes, of a guerrilla nation state existing in the world. Uh, they've not only destroyed that vision, but they've also raised very serious questions about the limits of a UN liberal international vision. Yeah. Because, sure, you can say that there are peacekeepers. You can say there's going to be peacekeepers around, uh, you know, in, in Syria today or in Libya today. But what are you going to do if ISIS runs over those those peacekeepers? Are you going to deploy an entire international army to, to go there, like was proposed with the Congo um, in the um, in the 1950s and 1960s? Yeah. There's no political will for that. Um, and, and so as I try to show this, this humanitarian invasion of Afghanistan, while um, a victory in some sense uh, over, uh, I, I think, an illiberal vision of, um, that was overly statist and tended to look the other way uh, towards um, you know, the protection of, of democratic values and, and human rights and, and so on, uh, when it came to certain national liberation movements, that was, you know, I, I think, a victory in some sense and, and lent uh, clarity to, to visions of what a, what a progressive you know, vision of internationalism should stand for. But uh, it also raised very deep questions about how non-state militias and the non-state groups that support them uh, should relate to international 
liberal regimes established by the United Nations. And, you know, that 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 debate continues today, obviously, in theaters like Syria and, and Libya and Iraq and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I read I read your argument as essentially the on some level, the state still matters. I mean, you had state capacities often, you know, missing. There's going to be uh, a lot of questions that need to be answered, like civil society, however important it is, is not it does, it's not necessarily going to solve all the problems in the world. And I, I saw it as kind of some of these arguments that are raising questions about how far NGOs can go in kind of transforming the world or the limitations of, of what they can do. Um, I'm reading that book by um, Mark, I think he pronouncing his name wrong, Mark Mauser about yeah, the, yeah. his uh, governing the, the governing the world and how he raises questions about the, the, the shortcomings of humanitarian work always being delivered by unaccountable NGOs versus state institutions. So I think that's that's an issue you definitely raise in the book. And I think it, I think it's interesting. Sure. I mean, even even today with the um, uh, with the bombing of the MSF, MSF clinic in northern Afghanistan, the, the claim that MSF has raised, uh, namely that they want to be able to sue the American and if I'm not mistaken, the Afghan government through this mm-hmm. international humanitarian fact finding commission is itself a sign and come back to this hour is, is itself this rather remarkable fact that um, through these institutions that were founded only very recently in the early 90s in the case of the um, of the fact-finding commission that NGOs can sue national governments uh, for, for um, you know, war crimes, uh, even though, you know, war crimes were initially a state-to-state uh, thing. And, you know, I, 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 you know I, I admire much of the work they do. Many of the people, obviously, in this book show, you know, have shown tremendous physical courage and moral courage that, you know, um, you know many of us uh, wouldn't have been able to do to, to make those leaps uh, from earlier political convictions that they had held very strongly to, to new ones, much less to put their bodies in danger uh, in which in, into what was a very dangerous you know military theater. But um, you know that doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, challenge and engage with the moral claims that these these NGO groups make, even if we um, admire them um, and the work that they do in many theaters. Sure, that's yeah, that's an important question. And to finish up, I mean, you may not want to want to answer this or maybe too far uh, away from what you're doing, but I have to ask, I feel obligated to ask this, uh, given, given what, given, as I, as I give you that great introduction, uh, this is, you know, a very important book. And I was wondering if you could have any advice for what Americans or the international community is trying to do in Afghanistan today. I mean, we obviously, you can only in a few minutes can't go into every angle, but if you're, if you learned something from your research and writing this book, what would advice would you have for Americans or Afghanis or, or whoever, the international community who want to create a functioning, dare I say, put in quotes, modern uh, Afghanistan uh, for, the, for, for the world, I guess? Well, you know, I think one lesson of the book on, on some very basic level is typically at periods where, you, where Afghans have leaned too far to one um, foreign client, be it the Soviet Union or the United States uh, or, or the British, uh, sometimes things have not gone so well. Um, so, you know, well, you know, I, I completely understand that after so much money and, and time and effort, there, there's very little, uh, you know, there's very little political will to stay there. There's also very little political will to see the, the government collapse. Um, I, I think recognizing that countries like Iran, like India, like Pakistan, uh, like China, uh, will have a role uh, to play in Afghanistan in the future. And I think just accepting that as a reality rather than some form of, of American uh, protectorate status over the country uh, is important. I mean, today, uh, you know, today, American aid to Afghanistan continues to underwrite 
uh, Chinese foreign investment in the country. And we need to ask at what point are, are the Chinese, Iranians and other interested actors in the region going to step up uh, with providing not just commercial aid or foreign investment, but also military aid to the Afghan government without it descending back into this situation that happened in the 1970s, which is mutual suspicion, great game narrative. One party intervenes, uh, leading to devastating consequences uh, for, for the region. So I think some acceptance of multipolarity within the region and figuring out how Afghans are going to exist, like they did for successfully in some ways for much of the 20th century, not between Germany and, and the Soviet Union and the British Empire, or between the United States and the Soviet Union and to a lesser extent West Germany, but now in a, in a more complicated 21st century Middle Asian or Central Asian arena between Iran, you know, pa uh, Pakistan, India, and so on. These, I, I think accepting multipolarity as a basis for some, for some future for Afghanistan is important rather than any one party trying to say it's going to control that. Uh, secondly, though, and not to, not to go into too length, though, I think it's very important to recognize that, you know, policy towards Afghanistan, I think in some ways will have to remain subordinate or at least take place in the shadow of policy towards Pakistan. I, I don't mean in this book to portray Pakistan as sort of the evildoer or the, or the country that has uh, tried to, to, you know, throw Afghanistan under the bus uh, continually. Uh, you know, Pakistan has, has, has many national issues. It's, it's, it's faced difficulties in wars against India and has, I think, legitimate concerns about India's ambitions in the region more broadly. But the fact is that Afghanistan, as a country that's about a sixth of the size of Pakistan and has a much, much weaker army, a much weaker state in general, in some ways is going to remain at the whims of, of Pakistani policy just because it's always going to be more important to policymakers in Islamabad than it is to actors in, in, in Washington. And so I think the more that we can figure out some kind of, mutual, as Americans at least, that we can figure out some kind of agreeable status quo between us and, and the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians perhaps and the Indians, that's, that's not going to cause some, one of those parties to intervene again and, and destroy the country. I think that will be uh, important for the future. Yeah, it seems like Pakistan, Afghanistan issues have to be settled in terms of what Pakistan fears with Afghanistan claims to their borders. Um, the issue of Pashtun nationalism. I, yeah, I would, I would think that's that's very sound advice. It's, it's a it's a it's a deeper issue, but I, I and you know I, I don't claim to um, to I, I wrote this book with a knowledge of Persian and, and Russian and other languages. I, I don't speak Pashto, and, and there are many scholars like James Karen. At SOAS, you know much more about this issue than I do. But um, I, I would just ask what the what 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 has the advocation of uh, of kind of a radical, assertive Pashtun nationalism brought to the Afghan people in approximately the sixty or seventy years that it's been trumpeted as really a, a raison d'être, a uh, reason to exist for the Afghan state. I think it's mostly brought in very negative consequences internally yeah. uh, to people of the country. It's I think significantly made Pakistani foreign policy more unpredictable. Uh, towards Afghanistan, and it is it, it. Frankly, as I try to show in the book, foreigners don't know what they're talking about. Oftentimes, when they, <laughs> when they raise raise this this issue of Pashtunistan or Afghanistan as a as a Pashtun state, and so to the extent that Afghans would like to successfully engage Russian or Indian or Chinese or Iranian or, or Saudi, uh, you know, uh, support. Uh, this is uh, a lot of actors. I think outside of Pakistan don't care or don't even understand what the what the issue is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've taken a lot of your time today, and I thank you for speaking with me. But before we go, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about what your future plans might be. Sure. Well, at the moment, I'm working on two uh, projects, one kind of small and one much bigger uh, that I, th I think extends some of the questions that I explored in humanitarian invasion. 
Um, at the moment, I'm preparing a uh, translation from Russian into English of one of the few really good ethnographies of Afghanistan that we have uh, from the 1920s of the Panjshir Valley, a region of Afghanistan to the north of Kabul that was famed as the site of the guerrilla resistance, coming back to guerrillas, by Ahmad Shah Massoud, one of the leading commanders in the Mujahideen uh, in the 1980s. And so this is really a ground-level view of what a very specific region of Afghanistan was like in the 1920s. I mean, not to not to take up too much time uh, more, but this issue of, you know, Afghanistan beyond Kabul and a vision for what Afghan, uh, what an authentic Afghanistan society looks like beyond Loya Jirgas and, um, and, you know, Karakul sheep and these hats that Hamid Karzai wears and so on and so forth. Trying to produce translations of actual descriptions of places in Afghanistan bounded at a specific place in time, rather than coming from this realm of oftentimes orientalist cliches, I think an, an important, albeit more academic, part of the discussion that needs to happen uh, for Afghans themselves to have debates about what a healthy and authentic, to some extent, Af Afghan nationalism would look like that's not just based on one ethnic group's uh, claim. Uh, so that's the first project. Uh, the second, more larger project that I'm engaged with at the moment is, a, is what I hope will become a book project that uh, looks, a, looks at what I dub the Cold War's Clash of Civilizations. That is to say, Part of the story of how Islamist groups, both Shia and Sunni Islamist groups, uh, throughout this broad region that we might have Central Asia or Persian Asia, stage this rollback against the left and against socialist and communist movements in the region, in particular in Afghanistan and Iran, throughout the 20th century. You know, researching this book, I was really surprised to see that not only had Afghans had their own socialist revolution, but that it was they, along with the Iranian two-day party uh, next door in neighboring Iran, that had some of the largest communist and socialist movements in Asia uh, and in the third world uh, during the 20th century. And yet, paradoxically, it was those two, those two countries that had the first revolutionary Islamic republics, although Shia in, in Iran and Sunni in the form of uh, Afghanistan. And so I'm hoping to, to look more about how the Soviet Union and this vision of sort of modernity from the left or through sort of Soviet Union influenced people's visions of the future in this part of the world, uh, but also to explore how, and my tentative thesis, I suppose, is that the, the reaction against or sort of what we dub the Islamist upswing or the Islamist revival across much of this world was not initially primarily anti-Western in character, or at least anti-Westernism was only one part of a larger package of issues and that we've forgotten to bring back in sort of the anti-socialism, uh, the anti-communism uh, in, into it, or at least to understand that for many of these actors, whether the Mujahideen or the followers of Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran, the Soviet Union was in some, in some sense part of the West. So when we talk about anti-Westernism, we need to include Russia and the Soviet Union in that discussion if we want to understand where these, these parties and where these groups that obviously continue to hold power, at least in Iran, uh, are coming from intellectually. Yeah, that sounds like a fascinating project. And it reminds me of my when I was doing my research uh, for my dissertation, uh, the Soviets just going praising Ayatollah Khomeini in the, yes. in the initial phases of the revolution and all of a sudden like as he ripped apart the soviet union and their godless modernity and future all of a sudden he turned into like this you know religious fanatic nutbag uh you know anti-progressive person very quickly after he was like the symbol of like third world you know nationalism against capitalism yeah you know so, whether, yeah. whether it's the first book or, or this project i mean a, a broad question that continues to interest me is how do at this moment where you, you can't use Nazism or you can't use Hitler as sort of some stand-in for the evils of world imperialism, and you're faced with challenges that really have very little to do with uh, the Second World War in Europe, 
how do people try to understand these, these new challenges or these new these new forms of what they see see as imperialism? And clearly, for the Soviets, uh, understanding that Shias and Sunnis are often different from one another. That in many cases, <laughs> you know, the, the the struggle against Shia is just as uh, violent as and as important for Mujahideen groups as it is a Soviet a, a struggle against socialism and, and communists. Uh, these are some of the issues that I, I hope to. Uh, uh, explore, particularly in an era, and to understand this, this kind of transition from a world in which the Cold War, rather than sectarian conflict, uh, defined that region to our world today in which sectarian conflict between uh, Sunnis and Shias uh, continues to mark that, to try to understand how that how that transition happened from a war against socialism to a war against the perception of Iranian expansionism and, and sort of Shia infiltration. Uh, so uh, that's, that's involved a lot more work in Persian. Uh, that's still uh, ongoing, but uh, I'm hopefully trying to, to walk the tightrope between, uh, you know, Russian and Soviet history, international history, and uh, and to some extent Middle Eastern history uh, today. Yeah, it's a very good question. I was I just got to add this in because I find it so sure. fascinating. When I um, my foreign policy class, I had my students read uh, translations of Al Qaeda writings, and we talked about them. And what the name that kept being or they asked a few times in my classes, but Bin Laden would always refer to Iran as the Safavid Empire. Mm. Uh, and just to go back to that whole Shia debate, students were stunned that he was so um, anti other Muslims. Like it didn't seem to register at first, but you're you're right to uh, to raise that issue. And the, 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 these grievances go back a long time, long before even the United States existed. So yeah, yeah. The question is, is and I'll hopefully explore is to what extent does the does the Cold War paradigm accelerate or or make possible uh, the explosion of this of this sectarian conflict? Uh, you know, is it is it just a millennia old thing that happened to explode at a certain moment in 1979, or you know, what, what precisely was the entanglement of the superpower conflict uh, with the emergence of this new sectarian uh, geography? And that's a, it's a hard interpretive question. Um, yeah. you know, the answer is probably not going to be yes or no, <laughs> but something in between. But, um, but no, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating question, and uh, looking forward to, 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 to getting out in the region again and doing interviews um, along with the archival work as well. Yeah, I look forward to reading it when, it, when, you, when you get it done. But Anyways, thank you for your time. I uh, enjoyed reading your book. It's a great book for anyone interested in the, the region in general, uh, Afghanistan, uh, foreign policy. I mean, even though it's not exactly about the Cold War, it does raise issues about uh, the, the superpower struggle and how it plays out in Afghanistan. Uh, gives a different angle that I think is important uh, to look at beyond the kind of great power focus like you spoke of. For professors who are listening to this, this would be a book I would recommend for advanced undergraduate and graduate seminars. Um, I would, if I were teaching a graduate seminar on anything related to the Middle East or Cold War, U.S. foreign policy, even um, I would, I would definitely consider this book or at least sections of it uh, to read. So I congratulate you on your on your accomplishment. Thanks. Thanks. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, to speak. No problem, and I wish you the best of luck down the line. Thanks.